our scripture, a little lengthy, um, and I think, I think just absolutely wonderful. You know, sometimes I try to edit these things for the sake of, I don't know, public reception. We're just not used to like people reading things and then sitting and listening, you know. That used to be all we ever did is, you know, like presidential candidates would speak for like two hours and we just listen, you know, that kind of thing. And we're just not used to that as much. Um, and so sometimes I try to edit these scriptures, but this one, it just, the way, the way Paul is sort of working with an idea here is just wonderful to experience. And, and, the, and, and so I'm just going to read it and you'll, you'll see what he's working with. But this is from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 through 58. <laughs> and he's not very nice either. Um, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Fool! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Yeah. And, and, and as for what you sow, you do not sow the body that is to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen in each kind of seed its own body. Not all flesh is alike, but there is one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. They are both heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one thing, and that of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. Indeed, star differs from star in glory. Just wonderful. I just think it's amazing. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is, is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. Sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a physical body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a physical body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the physical, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, made of dust. The second man is from heaven. As one of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as one of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the one of dust, we will also bear the image of the one of heaven. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Look, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised and perishable and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishability and this mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable body puts on imperishability and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast and movable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Please join me in prayer. Father, you are a God of seeds. Your word is a seed, this body is a seed. 
And we ask you, we trust you, to bring out the new life of the seed, of your word, of our lives, of all things. We look to you and we believe in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The end of the creed is all about the last things. And in particular, we're going to talk about things themselves and what will happen to things themselves, what will happen to matter, and then what's going to happen to time, to time itself. Last week we talked about forgiveness of sins and the main sort of theme of the forgiveness of sins is that eternity wrapped itself in flesh. Now we're saying that flesh is being brought into eternity. Or in fact, when we say the resurrection of the body, the word there actually means flesh. It's the word for flesh. How does this happen? Well, this is Paul's task in 1 Corinthians 15. So what, what does this fool say? The fool, the fool says, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? I think that's a perfectly legitimate question. And if you ask me that question, I will refrain from calling you a fool. I do not think it's a foolish question. Paul, however, um, you know, we don't know the context. But um, Paul has taken on himself the, the, the job of trying to explain how this works. And in characteristic Paul fashion, uh, we don't get a clear answer. Uh, what we get is this idea, this metaphor of the seed. That whatever this body is, it's going to die, but it's going to die not like something that disappears and dissolves forever, but it's going to die like a seed dies. You plant it into the ground and it grows something new. Now, the difference between an acorn and an oak tree is pretty dramatic, right? <laughs> pretty dramatic. But they're both physical. They're both physical. And so I think that's one thing we can focus on here when we think about what happens in the resurrection of the body. Our hope the thing we look forward to is not a completely ethereal, ghostly, spiritual realm. It's not a realm of perfect enlightenment where we're all sort of light beings floating around and through each other. This future that we look forward to has some sort of physicality to it. As Paul says, it has a different kind of glory. The seed has one physicality, the oak tree has another. They're very different, but they still still both have physicality. This is one important thing to kind of focus on, mainly because of what Christians have uh, overemphasized throughout the years. We have tended towards elevating the spiritual over the physical, and this is a problem. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Um, we have denigrated the body. We have denigrated passions. Um, we have made people feel bad for looking certain ways. We have made people feel bad for feeling certain ways, for living in their bodies, for even having bodies. And it's not just Christians who do this. Of course, our culture does it too, um, more so to women than men. Um, we have a problem with matter in our culture. We have a problem with physicality in our culture and our relationship to it. God doesn't get, a, get rid of it all. God transforms it. This is a hope that we have. 
This means that we don't opt out of real-world issues as Christians because we are focused on heaven, as, as, uh, as the, my old Southern Baptist buddies used to say, we're not going to be so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good. Um, so Christians ought to be right there caring about the fate of the Poudre River, <coughs> caring about the fate of small businesses, endangered species, and the unhoused, and so on and so forth. Flesh has a place in heaven. I want to explore why flesh has a place in heaven. And I want to do that um, by basically focusing on one word, now that we're at the end of the creed here. And that one word is love. We've already talked quite a bit about death. Uh, We talked about death when Jesus died. We talked about death when he was laid in the tomb. We talked about death when he descended into hell. We talked about death when we talked about the resurrection. Um, So the creed has a lot to say about death. And we need to talk about it again. Because we're talking about the resurrection again, our resurrection, and we're talking also about life everlasting. Um, I think we have a funny relationship to death. Uh, Obviously, uh, we've been thinking about it a little bit with Halloween and then some folks celebrating Dia de los Muertos, Day of the Dead. And, um, and I, w- I was thinking about how we have this sort of truce with death. We've sort of made a deal with death. We've made peace with death. What we've said is, you, death, you can have the body and we'll keep the memories. And, you know, we'll, we'll go through our five stages and we'll eventually get to acceptance and then it'll be fine. And then we'll just move about our lives. And I think this is so ironic because, uh, you know, on the one hand, we, we're warring with each other. We're warring with the living. Like, we, we fight with other people. And then we've made peace with death, and it should be flipped. We should be making peace with the living, and we should be warring against death. We of all people should be a people who consider death an enemy. Consider death as someone who should not win. Consider death as someone defeated. And one of the ways we do that is by thinking about what death gains. You know, we have some sort of ceasefire with death, you know, but death has not ceased firing, if you haven't noticed. Death continues to fire and fire and fire and take people away. That is not okay. We should not be content with this situation. God certainly is not content with death acting this way. God will make no truce with death. God gives up no ground to death. And not even the body for God is handed over to death. The body is resurrected. Again, I don't know how the body is resurrected. You know, we had a really interesting conversation last night about, you know, if you were on that plane and it in South America and it crashed and you had to eat the other people, you know, then what would happen to all the, I know, not appropriate sermon stuff, but um, so if you're visiting, this isn't normal, like cannibalism is not normal. Um, um, But, you know, we get into these complex sort of, you know, ideas like what happens to the molecules? You know, Uh, Paul doesn't know, we don't know. Um, but here's what we do know. Uh, it is crucial that the body is resurrection, and it is crucial because of this one word, love. We don't love apart from bodies. 
It's, we're incapable of loving apart from bodies. I remember saying that once here, and a close friend of mine, um, uh, some of you knew the Valentines, they moved to Alaska a little while ago, but I remember her not liking this idea at all. And she's like, I have a dear person that I support in, in another country, a, a, a child who depends um, deeply on her financial support, uh, you know, like, like this sort of world relief kind of stuff. And, and that's a form of love. And so she was very unhappy that I, I insisted on the body being part of love because she has no bodily relationship. She, she's not with that person. And I, I took that into account and I, and I thought, and I said, you know, yes, that's kindness, that's compassion, it's even necessary support. But, but the young person who she's supporting cannot live on that financial support alone. That person still needs love. That person still needs people in their life that love them, that know them, that care for them, that are with them. We need things like shelters. We need to pay for schools. We need warm socks, all of that. But the thing we need most is love. Love is presence. Love is knowing and accepting someone. Love is telling the truth to them and putting them above yourself. And that does not happen without a body. No body, no love. This is why God took a body. This is why God took on a body so that he could love us. And now he resurrects our bodies so that we can love him forever. That's why we have the resurrection of the body. It's for love. Now let's talk about life everlasting. Is it different? No, it's also about love. Life everlasting is also fundamentally about love. Sometimes the way we think of heaven is um, in terms of like an infinite timeline. You know, it's sort of like here, but if we didn't die and everything went well. Um, so sometimes we think of heaven as basically, you know, the only good thing about it is what doesn't happen, is that we don't die. Um, but life everlasting suggests that we can think about heaven as something to look forward to because of what it is, not what it isn't. In fact, um, I know lots of people who have objected to the idea of heaven. They've objected on several grounds. For instance, like if, you're, if your favorite thing in the world is the thing you think you're going to enjoy forever in heaven, it can't, you can't do it. I like pizza. Two weeks of pizza would be hell. It just would, uh, in a lot of ways. Like gastronomically, relationally. Um, there's just so many, you know, ways that it would not be good. Um, you know, if you like fast cars, fast cars get old. Um, if, you know, just, just, just imagine anything temporal, anything that we enjoy here, none of it is finite. Yeah, none of it is finite. That cannot be what heaven is. And also, also people really love this place. You know, and, and some people don't like the idea of heaven because they don't like the idea of leaving this place because they love this place. I don't know about you, but um, when we had that snow this week and it stuck to the trees, you know, I was, I was driving at night. I think I was, I was with Dave. Yeah, Dave and I were driving home and um, it was night. And then, you know, the streetlights sort of reflect off the snow. Magical. I don't want to leave that. That was amazing. 
I mean, there's just so much to love about this world. And so a lot of people, you know, they think about heaven and they think, what? I don't, I don't want to trade that for clouds and harps. Like, that just does not sound good to me. So there are some pretty decent objections to what heaven is all about. Um, and so I've tried to explain heaven in different terms, not as a, not as a length that I was, I was talking about Halloween candy this week with um, the youth group. And, you know, Halloween candy, when you're trick-or-treating, the key idea there is it's, it's about quality, not quantity. Do we all understand this, you know? You know, quantity, ah, it's just, it's too much, and your parents won't let you have all of it. And, and then it's like this battle, you know, about hiding it and, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's just not worth it. It's about the quality of the candy. A full-size Snickers? Are you kidding? That's incredible. Yeah, that's right. So heaven is like that. Heaven is more about quality than it is about quantity. Um, so as I was trying to explain to the children, and then the children corrected me, uh, which was a wonderful, honestly, wonderful, uh, gave me a lot to think about. But as I was trying to explain, is we just have different experiences of time. And what a perfect Sunday to talk about different experiences of time. I mean, what do we do? We just change the time. We can do that. We can literally just change the time. Eh, different time. It was this time, now it's this time. Like we, we can do whatever we want was, with time. It was 9.37 and 29 seconds one second ago, and now it's 9.37 and 33 seconds. Yeah, exactly. And, and then last Sunday, it was 10.37. Exactly last Sunday, it was 10.37. Now it's an hour earlier. What is happening? So we have these different experiences of time. Sometimes time just sort of drags on, and then sometimes time goes really quickly. We're having the time of our life, it flies by. Uh, I met a guy recently, he was in his 70s, and he said to me, he said, time goes so, fi- so fast, you blink and it's gone. You blink and then it's gone. That's his experience of time. Because he's, he's, he's just enjoyed his life, he's loved his life, he's loved what he's done, and he blink and it's, and he, and it's been amazing. Poets call this eternity in a moment. You were outside of time, or a better way to say it, time became fulfilled in something you did that you absolutely loved. Your experience wasn't as much as it wasn't as much about being timeless as it was about being timeful. We have these little moments in our life where it's like this. Heaven is all of that. Heaven is that never ending. Heaven is time flying, 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 flying. So here at the end of the creed, we get a picture of our destiny. It doesn't say a lot, you know, precisely about what this is exactly going to look like. It doesn't tell us when Jesus is going to return. It doesn't tell us how the universe is going to shape up. Um, It doesn't say what we will look like, but it will tell us what matters most, that the end of all things culminates in love. Because we have to have bodies for love, and when does time fly the most? It flies by when we're in love. Actual love. Not a memory of love. Not disembodied bliss of mindful intelligence and enlightenment, as though the most important thing in the world could be knowledge. No way. No, it's all about real presence. It's all about love. Love is the only thing that fulfills and transcends time. That's all there is. 
we come to the end of this creed, um, and we find that it ends in the same way that it began. Uh, you know that we've been looking at the creed all fall. We've been trying to understand what, it, what is sort of essential about the Christian faith. Um, what's, what's, what's sort of the, the stuff that we fall back on when we remember our baptism. And, and we saw that the creed began in love. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Why are we here? Why do we exist? Why do we have breath, live, move, have being? We weren't owed any of this. We won the lottery just being alive. It wasn't an inevitable achievement. It wasn't a natural process that got us to where we are right now. Your hard work had like this much to do with it. We're here because of love. God didn't need to make us. God didn't need to create us. God didn't need to make anything. God wasn't lonely. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were good. They were great. Perfect love. But we were made out of love. That's how the creed begins. And then what is revealed in the creed is not a list of beliefs that we need to all argue about or claim we believe and then go about arguing about other things. What is revealed is God, a particular God, a God who is three persons in relationship, a God who wraps himself in skin and bone, a God who lives in every corner of existence, even the darkest corner, and a God who invites all of us into a life that now we only glimpse a life that we see once in a while dimly as though through a fog or through the, the gloom before a sunrise, a life that is more real, more full, more solid, and more alive than our life is right now. We think we're alive now. Just wait. We think stuff is real now. Not real compared to then. Everything's going to get more real. Another glory, as Paul says it. Which means it will not be some kind of a weird, ecstatic, cloud, harp kind of existence, floating consciousness of enlightenment. None of that. It will be a mere, a, a, a mere fulfillment. It will not be a mere fulfillment of our wildest dreams because how boring would that be just to get what we want? It will be more than anything we can imagine. It will not be an end. Instead, it will be a beginning. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will all be changed. T.S. Eliot is a poet that I really like and um, at the end of one of his long poems, he, he says, we're going to spend our life exploring. We'll never cease from our exploring. And at the end of it, we'll return to where we started and know the place for the first time. That, to me, helps us with the mystery of what heaven is. Thanks, God. Thanks to God for this victory. Amen. Father, thank you for... Thank you for revealing yourself, revealing your Son and revealing your love in the Holy Spirit. Thank you for inviting us into your life forever. And thank you that it's not just in us invited, but those that we love, 
others that we've never met. Thank you for making a way for us to live in love forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now may the peace of Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. And may he bring you home rejoicing once again into these doors. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you.